Growth Pod is brought to you by Genero, a leading growth agency in the Nordics. We interview marketing experts, business leaders, and entrepreneurs to uncover the stories and strategies behind profitable growth. This is a conversation with Alf Rehn, Professor of Innovation, Design, and Management at the University of Southern Denmark. Alf has written multiple best-selling books, given a thousand or so keynotes, and served as a board member and strategic advisor for everything from new startups to global companies like IKEA. Our conversation focused on innovation, something Alf has spent a lot of time researching, teaching, and thinking about. We talked about why innovation can be something as simple as taping down cables to the floor, why psychological safety is necessary for building an innovative company culture, why small improvements can be more important and more difficult to make than big ones, and a lot more. Please enjoy this conversation with Alf Rehn. As I was preparing for this podcast, I was both excited and nervous, and for the same reason, because the themes that I wanted, was kind of hoping that we talk about are you know creativity, innovation, leadership. They're so, on one hand, they're so important for building successful, healthy organizations. On the other hand, they're so broad as to you know, become mean everything and nothing, and they become watered down and and very abstract. And and I know you agree on that, especially as it comes to innovation. So, I was hoping we can tackle these things, but but tie it back to kind of practical reality. Um, so, um, yeah, let's if we could start maybe with innovation, which I think your latest book is on. Yep. So, first of all, if you could give a definition, is is innovation something that is also accessible to us mere mortals or is it you know these tech gods in silicon valley they are the ones responsible for all the innovation in this economy or what is it and is it something that's relevant for the broad kind of business community if you will a key problem with the term innovation is of course the fact that it has become valorized it has become fetishized it has become made into this humongous big thing and and i don't think that was ever the meaning of it or or the intent behind coining the term innovation in its broadest or most basic form is basically any novel idea that finds a market actually finds a usage and market here doesn't necessarily refer to it having to be a market economy or a capitalist market so basically anything that's novel uh, that's different and which finds a usage but i but the question is still relevant because when we are asked to define innovation, we don't want to just stop at that rather bland notion of it's anything that can just be used and stuff. So instead we start pointing to things, doing what we in academia call ostensive definitions. And it's so super easy to point at big things. It's the iPhone, it's the internet, it's AI. And we kind of point to these humongous things that often aren't just one innovation, but a bundle of them. I mean, the internet alone is just probably a thousand innovation all crammed together. And of course, this generates the sensation of this is just something for, for the true geniuses out there. But I mean, Talking to a Finnish audience, which obviously we don't have just in the Finnish audience, when I talk Finnish audiences, I kind of say uh, that in Finland, there exists an innovation that's really obvious to us, 
and which I miss tremendously here in my new home country of, of Copenhagen. And that is the fact that on top of a cupboard, in uh, on top of the sink in Finland, is a cupboard where you can put stuff to dry. So it drops out. It's a, it's a classical thing in that uh, the cupboard on top of the sink in Finland always has grates, so that kind of uh, uh, simple small washing up can be left there to dry out. This was an innovation by an at-home mother in Finland, whose name, I'm sorry, escapes me now. Should have double-checked this before we started recording. Uh, and I say, this, of course, is an innovation that has helped tremendous amounts of Finns, and it's only the vagaries of chance why this hasn't been replicated all over. So, to your question, yes, innovation is something anyone can do. Anyone actually can contribute to uh, in various ways. And we should not kind of think that this is just the, the, the kind of area for true geniuses. Instead, we should think in a more democratic manner about innovation. So that also the work in supporting innovation should be kind of considered innovation work. I, I worked a little bit with an, a hospital at one point in my career. And, and they had this thing where they realized that they had issues with um, um, not mortality as such, but uh, critical instances during operations, errors, problems, issues that occurred. And, and this was something that they really kind of focused on and wanted to find solutions for. And they talked to uh, the surgeons, obviously, because that's whom you always go to. And, and they proposed various kinds of complex, often technical uh, things that could be done uh, or bringing in more surgeons. And, uh, but they really couldn't pinpoint the problem. So, so instead they went and talked to the bosses and the bosses kind of looked at various things and suggested various solutions, which all tended to be very costly, often technological, and they couldn't find a solution. And then in a sort of last chance, last ditch effort, they went and talked to the actual nurses in the surgeries. And most of them kind of said, oh, that's not my purview and that's not what I'm supposed to do. And, and then one of them said, well, there's the cable thing. And they're going to want, what cable thing? Well, the fact is, if you look at most of these instances, it, it's almost always connected to the fact that we have these cables on the, on the floor of the surgery, of the theater. Uh, and um, and uh, we've talked about getting something to kind of uh, stop people from tripping over them. Uh, and, and in fact, is the tripping bit is almost always what instantiates the issue. A surgeon kind of, you bump into a surgeon, he nicks something and so on. And we kind of all look around and went, well, yeah, but we can do that. We can just put, uh, kind of like tape them down or put something on top like you do uh, often in, in roadworks. So, uh, and they saw that and immediately uh, critical instance neurosurgeries went down. Now, is this a story about innovation? Taping down loose cables really doesn't sound like an innovation, but it was an instance of an idea that was novel in that setting because nobody had taped them down or secured them before that was adopted and which actually generated value because not having people tripping around in a surgery is valuable, at least to the pe person being operated upon. So what we need to kind of rethink is not just what is innovation, but who do we talk to? Who do we listen to? And are we prepared to do those little things that might actually improve 
uh, kind of the, the manner in which we work and, and generate value through this. Often, little incremental improvements in a workspace are far more valuable than spending 18 months pondering how can we get an AI uh, to do something or, or how can we digitize something else. So my advice to companies is always, well, make sure your cables are tied down first. Uh, make sure people aren't tripping unnecessarily. And then we can come back and talk about the big AI-driven or whatever innovation you would like. Got it. So essentially, I mean, you're saying for a company that's thinking about, let's just to use the example of AI and how they can use that, innovation is more likely to look like one employee figuring out how to use ChatGPT to automate some basic workflow that they have in the company, as opposed to management team going abroad, thinking deeply for weeks on end about their AI strategy for the next 12 years, 12 months, which no one knows even what's going to happen in the next six months. Is that kind of how, how, how to think about it? Sure. But also that we have a tendency within the innovation discourse to, to always be so wedded to the latest and the greatest technologies. And, and whilst I'm a big AI proponent I'm kind of continuously finding myself these days kind of reminding people, hey, it doesn't need to be an AI solution. Sure, if you find somebody in the organization that's figured out a clever hack or a clever way to use this, let's run with it. It's lovely. That's well, fantastic. But instead of kind of forcing us to kind of all, oh, we need to make more AI innovations, start to go around and, and talk to people and see what are your actual problems and do you have suggestions for solutions? I, I tended to say, and I sort of still say, that I've never met an organization that lacks innovative ideas. And then I joked around that, and I've worked with the tax authority and the police force. Uh, but my point there was that a lot of innovative ideas disappear in organizations because they don't come from the right-looking people. You know, the, the cool kids with their tight jeans and their, their funky eyeglasses. Or that they don't look like innovation. They don't feel like innovation. They don't kind of connect to the latest hype in technology or something similar. Uh, sometimes, and that's sort of what the, my cable story tries to point out, sometimes it's so easy as using gaffer tape uh, where gaffer tape wasn't used before. Uh, and what a lot of innovation managers kind of battle is, on one hand, we want to have the flashy stuff. We want to have the sexy stuff. We want to have things to show because it's so cool when we have a new AI solution or a new sustainable technology or, or we can use big terms like circular economy around something. But quite often, whilst we're doing that, people are cursing over why isn't this damn basic thing that I have to work with all the time. Why isn't still is why isn't it still working the way it's supposed to? Uh, I mean, even my own office at uh, the, the University of Southern Denmark, uh, we had a super fancy house. Uh, one of the problems is we have a super fancy front door as well, automated and all this. Uh, it's broken a lot of the time. And I'm kind of going, yeah, how could we claim to, to be an innovative university when we can't make our front door work. 
<laughs> so let's focus on getting the basics right first. After that, yeah, I'm, I'm game going on an AI vacation and, and sitting and, and kind of thinking big thoughts. But let's get uh, the front door working. Let's make sure that nobody's tripping when they don't need to. After that, we can talk about the big ideas. That, that makes sense. It, it, given that you've been in contact and you're continuously in contact with so many different companies and organizations, is there anything that stands out um, in terms of patterns when it comes to the companies or organizations that are really good at this, continuously letting these small improvements, taping down the cables, bubble up and then be solved? How, how do, is it a matter of culture? Is it process? Is it leadership? What's the driving force? It's always culture. Actually, that's my answer to everything. It's always culture. Because uh, I don't believe that ideas are the problem. There are always ideas. Uh, people generate ideas even though you try to tell them to stop, even though they try to stop themselves. We still we cannot stop. We, we always generate ideas. The processes, which a lot of innovation researchers have spent inordinate amounts of time trying to figure out they're not that difficult. Start with supporting with small sums, continue if things go well. I mean, it's not rocket science. Innovation management is, is frankly, it's made out to be this big thing, but it's, it's actually just common sense. But what happens in a lot of organizations is that there are toxic cultures where only some people get their voices heard and where a lot of people have tried to bring up ideas but have been kind of yawned out of the room, that is, met by yawns and shrugs and are now no longer interested in contributing. So the kind of organization that that is capable both of incremental innovation, of, of doing those little good things, and of radical innovation, that is, finding entirely novel ways of, of working or solving something, uh, they actually look very much alike. And the, the basic thing that kind of sets them apart is not something fancy. It's something that should be self-evident in all organizations, and that is psychological safety and a civil conversation or a respectful conversations. That is a, a culture where everyone feels they have a right to be heard, where the little mousy secretary feels that he or she can can kind of stand up and speak in the meeting or where the people on the floor of the factory feel that they can come and, and give their input and where all ideas no matter what they sound like at first or no matter who brings them are met by respect and civility that uh, people don't just yawn and, and walk out the room when the wrong person speaks or the wrong idea is aired, but where there is a, a respectful relationship. And this does not mean an uncritical relationships, because, and this is something that I bang on all the, about all the time, critique is not disrespectful. On the contrary, critique is one of the most respectful things we can imagine. And I always have this little scenario I kind of air for people. Imagine you spent your weekend thinking of something. You have this idea. You really want to bring this to the company. You you start to think about this on Friday. On Sunday, you're, you're convinced this is fantastic. You can't wait to get back to that Monday morning meeting. 
and you come to the Monday morning meeting and you present your idea and the result is nothing. Silence. People just look at you dead in the face, dead in the eyes, take a second sip of coffee, no response. Compare that to a second scenario. Everything else has been alike. You come there Monday morning, you come to a meeting, you present your idea. And the first thing that happens is somebody says, interesting, I have three questions and I believe there's a problem here, here, and here. Which one is more respectful towards the idea? We know it's the second one. Critique is respectful because critique takes the idea seriously. It has listened, it has thought, it counters. And also critique is an opening to a dialogue of, I'm going to ask you a question and you can then respond. I'm going to criticize part of it and you can rebut my criticism. Now we have something going. Now we can actually work with the idea. That silence, which is so common in many organizations, but uh, there might be a little extra touch of finishness in it as well. As well. Uh, that one is the killer. That one is the one, if you've met that once, you're very wary of bringing the second idea. If you met it twice, you've learned that there is no point. If you met it three times, you're prepared to go on pension or, or uh, <laughs> just go home and start drinking. Uh, Silence is the killer, not critique. Yeah, I, I think it's one thing that happens, I feel, is that management becomes unaware of the power dynamic and the fact that, you know, we feel, um, talking, you know, whether it's board or CEO or whoever it is, that, yeah, we have a culture where everyone can speak up because I feel comfortable sharing my ideas openly, but the person lowest in the, the organization doesn't necessarily share that share that. So I think that's that's one big kind of blind spot. And another, what I'm hearing when you talk about psychological safety is that it really comes down to the very smallest things. Like it's it's not enough for us to say, oh, this is how we're going to, you know, these are the words that we're, this is the, how we talk about ideas. This is how we, the process, when someone brings something up, this is how we respond. It could be something as little, little as a kind of glance. The wrong glance could tell someone that, oh, I don't, take what you're saying seriously it's like it's very small things and then my question becomes if so if if culture is what really matters it has all these downstream effects on innovation and oh, excellent operational excellence whatever it is and the input in the culture are obviously the people and for people to act to create that psychologically safety they need to be emotionally healthy they need to be stable they need to be mature they need to have the knowledge about how they're impacting their, you know, how they, how their words and actions are impacting others and so on and so forth. How do we, how do we create the culture? How do we get the people to create the culture that we need in order to be, let's say, just innovative? That, that is, of course, that's the holy grail. That is, uh, if, if I had the, a quick podcast-friendly answer to that, I wouldn't be on podcasts because I would be so insanely wealthy that I would have Elon Musk as my butler. Um, not I'm sure, I don't think he'd make a good butler, but anyway, I could do it just for, for the giggles. Um, no, I mean, it is a tremendously big question, and, and how do we do it? And I, I kind of said, well, well, we have to start from the little things. Uh, I mean, the first thing is... Uh, to realize that these small cultural things, the shrug, the sideways glance, and this, that these actually matter. Uh, in 
in research, for instance, on racism and, and inequality, we speak of microaggressions, that uh, the, the manner in which we kind of, uh, uh, kind of laugh at certain things because they feel culturally uh, that they don't fit uh, can actually be a microaggression, and that is sort of how, how we keep certain people down. I often want to extend this and say, well, microaggressions isn't just about uh, race or, or ethnicity or uh, uh, about gender. They can exist in, in various forms. And, uh, and I've met many, many organizations where microaggressions uh, were definitely the problem. So the first step is, of course, to, to understand this uh, and to call that out. Uh, sometimes when I do keynotes, I, I and it's too long a story to tell here, but but I kind of rem- remind people of I once saw a very very good uh, female uh, interim CEO uh, throw a person out of the room for yawning too much, uh, and uh, and that seems a really cruel thing to do because a yawn is of course a very human uh, response. You could be tired and so on. But she she remarked in the meeting that he seemed to be yawning every time uh, a woman, particularly a young woman, tried to present a new idea. And uh, that that if he was so tired to listen to women, uh, he could bugger off. And it was a very kind of dramatic thing to do. And afterwards, I kind of went up to her and said, well, what was that about? Uh, And she said, well, yeah, everyone's going to call me a bitch uh, after this. But they already do. Uh, so that doesn't change anything. But I might be gone from here in a couple of years, but it's going to be a decade until somebody dares yawn in a meeting again. And I loved that because she she kind of went in as a leader and she, she signaled something. She said, yeah, we're not going to do be doing this. Or, or if you're too tired in a meeting, don't come to the meeting. If you're just going to sit there and laugh or yawn or shrug or whatever, that's not on. Uh, so she called out a toxic set of behaviors, maybe in a slightly too radical a way, but at least she did something. Uh, and uh, I, myself, uh, have started doing the fact that if I yawn in a meeting, for instance, which I do a lot because I sit in too many meetings, um, I, I apologize, say, listen, listen, that wasn't against you. I'm feeling a little tired. Love the idea. Keep going. I mean, I check myself before I wreck myself. Uh, I I try not to kind of do the microaggressions. And if I do something that could be interpreted as a microaggression, uh, I try to kind of call it out and say, hey, listen, yeah, we all yawn, we we all shrug, we might all have a resting bitch face. But but as long as we have that conversation going, as long as we can can talk about it, we can still generate an, a culture of psychological safety where where these completely normal behaviors do not kind of become toxic, do not become repeated, do not become kind of the, the problem that they can become. Got it. Do you have any examples, um, whether from you know observation or your practical experience of organizations that have been able to implement these things and go from, you know, let's say their average when it comes to psychological safety or, or these things. And then just by implementing some of these practices and creating awareness around it, they've been able to radically change the culture. And as a result of that, then also have all these positive downstream effects, innovation, new ideas, experimentation, and so on. I do, 
but uh, I'm, I'm always wary that we start treating these as kind of magic beams. Uh, what I have seen uh, in various uh, kind of organizations, particularly when new CEOs come in, uh, is that a new leader uh, starts taking these issues seriously, start calling them out, starts talking about them, introduces kind of new conversations about them, and that this over time, because culture is one of the slowest moving things in the world, that this over time creates more creative, more innovative cultures. Uh, I think if you, for instance, look at the, the Nordic company Stora Enso, uh, this is a company that's uh, for a long time felt and, and self-identifies as very conservative, rather traditional and so on. But they've done a tremendous amount of work trying to kind of change this, to create a culture of uh, kind of being more open to ideas, testing out stuff, uh, paying attention to diversity issues and all these uh, all the things I talk about. Now, did that immediately change them, flip them from an old traditional, basically paper mill company to a new bio materials company? Of course not. Of course not. And they're still in the process. Uh, it takes decades to, to enact true deep change. But they have been on a tremendously positive path. I'm sure they've uh, stumbled at times. I'm sure they've made errors. But what we have to remember with innovation, or in part innovation, but also innovation cultures, it's a marathon, not a sprint. If you imagine that it can be changed with a kind of two-month focused uh, project, you're going to fail. Yeah, you might get some, some fun proofs of concept out of it, and you might get something nice to put out on social media. Will it truly change the organization at its cultural core? Of course not. I mean, we, the very idea is ridiculous. Uh, creating an innovation culture is sort of like raising a child. Uh, there, It's going to take about 20 years. Uh, you'll stumble along the way, but there's going to be a lot of fun in there as well. And with kids, we're very good at accepting this. We look at our children and uh, we sometimes kind of uh, think about how slow the process is. And my God, still can't put in new toilet paper when they take the last piece or still haven't learned how the dishwasher works. Uh, but over time, they tend to end out great because with our children, we have patience. We, we understand that uh, we can't just stand there shouting at them and shout louder when, when uh, they, they fail in something. Uh, and we accept that it takes time. I'm sort of saying we need to have exactly the same sense when it comes to building innovation cultures. And no, I'm not saying it will always take 20 years. You can create improvements in a week. You can create big improvements in six months. You can bring tremendous change in a year. But in the big picture, you can't imagine that these kind of focused things uh, would be all that you need. Instead, we need the radical patience to, to allow culture to develop over time into something greater. And, uh, and there I think that the analogy to children might seem a little odd, 
But, but I'm saying if we can raise children, we can build good organizations. Uh, and if we took a little bit of that patience and understanding and love we have towards our children, even when they can be real assholes when they're teens and preteens, just like our, the people in our company can be. Uh, if we took a little bit of that into the workplace, we could do so much good. Yeah, I, I totally, totally agree with that. I think you made a really good case that culture is the starting point for any any real attempt at, at true and lasting innovation. What role would you say that, say, processes, incentives, and systems play? I'm thinking specifically that companies like things that are measurable, that are predictable, that are linear, and innovation, I'm guessing, can look very different. It's random. It's not easily, it's not immediately obvious the value and, and it's, it's just messy. So how does a company create innovation? And, and another thing that I'm, I'm thinking maybe attention is the need for standardization. So companies that are delivering, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about as, as an example, uh, VR, our lovely, uh, train operator here in Finland, um, they have one need, which is to, do, to drive a lot of trains on time and get the goods and people where they need to go. And that, at least to me as a user, is the core. Like if they're if they're able to innovate and bring in new features and make the trip a bit more pleasant and improve convenience and comfort, I'm all for that. But um, punctuality trumps all, all the other things. So how does an organization who has, you know, they have clients with existing needs they have uh, products that they need to ship, services that they need to deliver and maintain a high level of, of, of quality and satisfaction. How do they combine that uh, with, with innovation? And how do they set up the system that allow innovation to, to even uh, to flourish or, or to even exist? Okay. That's, I think, was, was that seven questions or, or, or was yeah, that Yeah, that was a lot six? of questions. <laughs> no. Thank you. Thank no, you I, for I mean, whatever one you want. There are there are very very good points in there and big points, difficult points. Uh, let me start with with the process bit because that is it's of course true. Uh, a lot of executives are trained uh, in in kind of creating processes and optimizing processes. Some of them are process engineers, so so that gets even more enhanced. So so it's natural uh, that gets there. There, I, I kind of tend to say, well you wouldn't have the same process for hiring as you would for the production of carbonic acid or whatever. I mean, you, it is natural that we have different processes for different functions. And the error we do is that we imagine that innovation is always the same process. That is, it's the same thing. When we know sometimes it's a technological process, solving something technologically, which might require combining technologies in an entirely new way. Sometimes it's purely social, as in taking a way of working from one context to another. Sometimes it's a really messy combination of the two. So imagine that the same process could cover everything from the the kind of incremental innovations in on a factory floor to major changes in business models, I mean, that's, that makes absolutely no sense to me. Uh, so 
rather than thinking there needs to be a process, so we go, okay, so, so what is the meta process? Uh, but also, what process is there in place to ensure that process doesn't become the enemy? That is, uh, we, we often kind of over-engineer these things to, to make them uh, safe and, and clear. And, and in, a, your com- in the company you mentioned, uh, Finnish Rail, uh, the thing is, of course, that a lot of the process is focused on never Admit, uh, never allowing errors. Everything needs to work. And as anyone who's used Finnish Rail knows, it doesn't. Uh, but um, but their, pro- their problem is that they have over-engineered things to the point where novel things that actually might work won't get tested because they threaten the process itself. So that's part of it. Uh, another part is, which is kind of connected to this, is uh, we believe that the process needs to be the same with little things as with big things. When I was a young man, which granted is many years ago now, uh, I had this this very simplistic idea that yeah, yeah, but but it must be sort of like it's at home. If I want to do a little thing at home, such as fix the sink, uh, and then then that's very easily done, uh, normally very fairly cheap. Uh, you just go and do it, and, and it's done. And if there's something bigger, like building a new sound system, uh, I need to kind of really think about the investment and check it with my partner and, and see how it fits with other things. And I thought that was how it worked in companies as well. In companies, it works the, definitely it works the other way. That is, the big issue in a lot of companies, it's so much easier to get a million euro to do a really kind of big, complex project testing something than it is to get 5,000 euros to do a quick experiment uh, or fix something that everyone agrees should be fixed. Because when it's a million euros, there's a process for that. There is a committee which sits with a budget and when it's 5,000 euro, everyone just looks at everyone else and go, well, I don't have that money. Do you have that money? I don't have that authority. Do you have that authority? So a thousand things get undone. Uh, and I have a story from back in the day of SAS, the airline, which today obviously is in a lot of trouble. But this was the days when it actually revamped itself to become one of the most beloved airlines on the planet. And I happen to know the guy who ran uh, the service design, or basically was head of service, or, or even kind of strategy uh, for the company. Uh, and he said that, well, uh, one of the big big problems uh, was, of course, that they they're very pro, very structured processes. So he went to the air hostesses and say, listen, when we let in people who come flying business class, they bring in a lot of money. We can't be standing in the galley cutting lemons. So, yeah, it takes away from cutting lemons, but you cut the lemons later, you stand in the doorway and greet people by name if possible, uh, because that is better service. And if somebody during uh, the flight has an issue, annoyed that their personal favorite brand of beer isn't available on that specific flight, you have uh, money in the till, Take the money, solve the problem. That is, if if it requires giving them 20 euro uh, as compensation because they, they get around, 
do that. It's with euro, it doesn't matter. It's their ticket costed, costed so much more that if you can fix something with 20 euro, do it. This got customer satisfaction rates at SAS, this little thing, telling air hostesses, smile first, cut lemons later, and if you can fix something with 20 euros, fix it with 20 euros. This alone got their customer satisfaction skyrocketing. It made it for a while the preferred airline for the business traveler. And the point here being, we so often miss out because we don't have a process for the little things, for the 20 euro thing, for the 1,000 euro thing, for the 5,000 euro thing, because most leaders don't think the little things matter. But they do. In fact, most innovations start out at tremendously little things. I forgot what the other questions were already, but uh, I remember that you said something about incentives. And here, kind of this ties in to each other. So first, don't over-engineer. Second, get the little things right before the things. And third, incentives are deeply misunderstood. People think that incentives are always a fact of, of get people more money, give people more salary, give people... Uh, often, that is not the incentive people are looking for. And when I say that, people think I'm, I'm going to say something that they want to do something meaningful. That's not the problem either. Uh, so I worked a little bit with IKEA. And IKEA is, of course, a beloved company for many reasons, and, and they have a tremendously good culture, and uh, there's a lot of things to admire, and they, they make more money than God. I mean, they, they're ridiculously successful in that sense. But there is one thing that is problematic inside IKEA, and even though I have an NDA, I believe I can actually say this, because it's the same as in so many other companies. And it's the fact it's not a money problem. Uh, in IKEA, if you want to get money to test, test out something, uh, yeah, you probably need to go ask permission, but the money will be there. I know people inside IKEA who've sat with tremendous amounts of innovation budget, but what they lack is time. Most people in IKEA are running ragged because they simply they they're so successful they simply cannot hire quickly enough. So I know of cases where people in IKEA have sent money back because they never found the time to do the project. Uh, and whenever I come into a company and they say, oh, but we have this innovation budget of X millions of euro, uh, and we haven't even been able to use that, I say, well, I see the problem right here. You think that that in itself solves the problem, that you just throw money at it. How easy is it for a person in your company to take a week off and just work on their kind of uh, idea? And they look at me as, I've, is, as if I asked, can I kill your children or something? Take a week off? Of course they can't. No, 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 no. We have customers. We have deadlines. I said, yeah, sure. Okay. So, so let me make it simple for you. Uh, how easy is it, is it for somebody to take uh, basically an afternoon off just to daydream? And now they look like I didn't just kill their children. Now I want to kill their pets as well. Daydream? Daydream? Of course they can't take after daydream. The, the, the very idea is ridiculous. And I say, well, I've solved your problem right now. 
You said nobody can have time off to actually do an innovation project and they can't even have enough time to think of an innovation project. And you think that just because you have a pile of money, you've solved the problem. And then I don't say you're fucking idiots, but that's sort of what I'm thinking in my head. Because the incentive most people want is a chance to test a chance to have some time, extra time to, to try something out. The, that little window of freedom where they can kind of go, yeah, I don't need to care about that deadline right now. I don't need to care about the report. I could just lie down in a sofa and daydream about a way to solve this problem that's been nagging me for the last three years in this company. That's the incentive they want. A little bit of freedom and a little bit of time. I love that. So, I mean, essentially, we've covered culture, processes, and incentives needed to kind of create innovation. Is there anything missing from the, I think that's a pretty good, <laughs> that's a pretty good place to start. But is there anything else that you kind of like, if you get involved with a company and some kind of engagement, um, is there anything else that's like very high up on your checklist of, 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 of things that you look for? Well, there, there are, of course, tons of things and and what people misunderstand about kind of innovation projects or innovation work in an organization is it's can be a lot slower when we talk about here it's easy to kind of throw out these big big ideas and then big big notions uh and it can actually be a lot more dull boring we don't we don't associate that work with with the term boring but it can be about double checking and checking again is are are we taking care of the culture? Are we taking care of the time issues? Are we spotting new problems that I might not have a time to kind of address here? So, so it is, as I said before, it's a marathon, not a race. Uh, but if I were to pick one thing, it's, of course, the issue of leadership, uh, which we haven't really addressed here so long, because in the end, it always does come down sooner or later to a leader. And whilst I still maintain the culture is the most important thing, leadership is very central to a culture. Uh, what the issue tends to be is that I've never met a leader who doesn't love innovation. Or more precisely, I haven't met a leader yet who doesn't love to show off innovation. Uh, leaders tend to be really keen to show their coolest projects. And, oh, this is our new AI chatbot. Or, oh, look here, we've done this really cool thing and so on. And, and that is, of course, admir admirable and understandable. It, they should be enthusiastic. They, they should love that kind of stuff. However, what can be lost in this is that because often people want to impress their leaders and impress their CEOs and so on, uh, the performative aspects of all this, and performative is a very academic word for it, but uh, the show-off effects, or sometimes we talk about innovation theater, so the theatrical effects uh, are often enhanced in organizations. If you want to be promoted in your normal large corporation, it's actually more important to look innovative than to be innovative. And I know that's a harsh thing to say, but, but it's true, so I'm going to say it anyway. So I've seen a lot of people be promoted simply because 
they used the right words and really flashy powerpoints uh, and knew that uh, it's more important that your innovation project looks good than it actually works in practice uh, and the reason for this is that uh, leaders don't always have the possibility or the patience or the time because a lot of leaders are are pressed for time as well to, to really kind of follow the whole path of innovation from that really weak first idea all the way to when it becomes so normalized, so standardized, so kind of almost mundane that it's all forgotten that this actually was an innovation. So, so sometimes leaders make this, miss this big arc and instead kind of look at the flashpoints. And... I've been through many, many corporate headquarters and been shown these big show-off projects. Here's our accelerator. Uh, here's our incubator. Here's our lab. Here's our moonshot. All these kinds of words. And, and I get shown beautiful, wonderful things. And then sooner or later, somebody kind of sidles up to me and goes, whispers because they don't want the boss to hear you know that it never worked, don't you? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, I've sort of figured that out. And I think there is a place for innovation theatre. I mean, uh, we, we, it's easy to condemn it, but I'm, I think there's a place for this performance. Uh, uh, it's sort of, we, we need a little bit of glam and blitz and glamour into our lives. Uh, so, so I don't believe that companies should completely stop celebrating things that look good and, and, and are flashy and sexy and, and so on. But we shouldn't kind of get bewitched by these either and think that this is all there is to it. And we should be careful that the culture doesn't learn that it's more important how it looks than how it works. Um, because there are many, many organizations where that sadly is the fact. And leaders, and I've said this to leaders, leaders should be just as keen to promote the sometimes boring or less impressive little things uh, as they are of showing off this this kind of really uh, glitzy stuff. Uh, and um, one place where, where I kind of really think they've, they've done well here is the group today known as the Strawberry Group. So the hotel group run by this uh, diminutive Norwegian billionaire that seems to be on path to owning all the, all the hotels in the Nordics. Because they really have a culture in which the little things matter and which they pay attention to the little things. And I've shared a stage at their big events, internal events, with their CEO, where he can take out this tiniest little thing somebody has done in just one of the smaller hotels and say this person and i won't give exact examples here because again i don't want to uh, take away anyone's thunder uh, but he, he can come on stage and say listen i went to this hotel and at their breakfast buffet they had this guy and he figured out a way how to get the the waffles extra crispy and i fucking love those waffles and then everyone kind of cheers that somebody noticed <laughs> that somebody made the waffles extra crispy and that this can be made a key point at their big annual event. That's brilliance because that communicates that it's not just the big flashy show of things. Sometimes it's just 
taping down those cables or making those waffles extra crispy. I, I think that's a great way to tie this whole our whole conversations on uh, conversation on innovation together. And I suppose that that to your last point that requires leaders who are not just concerned about their own careers and, and advancements, which we all are, but also actually care about the end product, the end user, the customer, and wanting to deliver exceptional service and quality. It's not easy being a leader in a fast-moving world. And and here I also want to kind of make it clear that I'm not trying, even though I can be a little snarky and, and critical at times in these comments, I don't want to kind of go out and point fingers a lot of leaders, the reason they get attracted to innovation theatre and the reason that they sometimes over-engineer things is because there's so many demands on them. It's because they're asked to do the impossible. They're asked to take great chances, take great risks, experiment, whilst making sure that there are no risks, uh, that everything works, uh, and that uh, the, the machinery uh, kind of keeps chugging along as it always did. So there are they're being asked to do something deeply paradoxical, deeply contradictory. And will there be errors along the way? Yes, absolutely there will. But again, it's a marathon, not a sprint. So just as we should uh, pay attention to the little things, we should also paradoxically be able to ignore the little stumbles. That is, yeah, sometimes a CEO will be really fascinated by some innovation theatre. That's okay. That's okay. We can we can live with that. As long as that doesn't become the only thing they're fascinated by. And as long as they can kind of correct those little stumbles over the long arc of making actually an innovative organization. That's, that's really good. And uh, you've written a book about the paradox of leadership. We won't have time to mm -hmm. get into that. But uh, Alf, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to get... You know, get a, take take apart a little bit of, of your wisdom, and I feel like we met at least my criteria of, of getting some really practical things um, on on a topic that <laughs> can often be, well, performance and theater. Um, well, it's been a pleasure to be here. Yes, and for people who want to follow you, you are a very active uh, thinker. Is it LinkedIn um, or or where? Where's the best LinkedIn, Threads, uh, Instagram, my web page. I, I kind of, I'm, I'm platform agnostic, although a lot <laughs> less active on Twitter these days for obvious reasons. Got it. So I'll link, I like the LinkedIn and and the website at the very least in in the show notes. Thank you so much, Alf. Uh, it's been a pleasure and uh, good good luck with everything you got going on. Hope that the year is full of innovation and creativity and challenges and and progress for you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can find all episodes of The Growth Pod on Spotify, YouTube, and Apple Podcasts.